Genesis chapter 14. Uh, about a, I think it was about a week and a half ago, I went to um, the airport to pick up a friend of mine. He is a pastor, uh, a campus pastor of a multi-site church in Charlotte, and a great dude, loves the Lord. We've been friends since like sixth grade. And so I went to pick him up and just have coffee with him, and it hit me that he and his family and his church were about to experience Hurricane Florence. Um, now, I'll be honest, uh, I am pretty numb to, to a lot of the, we'll say, weather-based tragedies that happened, not because I'm a cold-hearted jerk, because there's so many of them, and I don't know that my emotions or my mind um, are able to wrap around the gravity of what happens on, on a regular basis there. And, and so it hit me, and I, and I basically said to him, are you guys like nervous because your family is back in Charlotte, you're out here? And uh, he said, oh, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, it won't affect inland as much. And, uh, but churches are trying to get their head around what does it mean to come around um, the communities that are, are basically devastated. So I want to I actually share with you um, about the event that happened. But even more importantly, I want to share with you the repercussions of this event. So it was a Category 4 hurricane. Uh, by the time it hit land, I think it was Category 1 um, in Elizabethtown alone. Uh, it dropped 36 inches of rain. I just quantify that. That's an incredible amount of rain. Um, the Cape Fear River uh, crested 35 feet above flood stage on September 19th. 35 feet above, ponder this. Like, that's an incredible amount of water. And so the reality is you don't really know the full repercussions of this kind of rain for a while. But here are some initial things that we're starting to watch as the repercussions unfold. Um, let's talk about animals for a moment. 3.4 million chickens and turkeys were killed. I got chickens. I like my chickens. That's a lot of chickens. It's a lot of animals. 5,500 hogs were washed away and swept into the rivers as their bodies decompose. Um, the rivers are being um, profoundly impacted by this. Um, there are nine million hogs in the area, and again, 5.5 million of them have died and are being are rotting. Um, the sewage waste in the streams is actually on levels that are just um, not normal. So if you um, are on a barn or if you're familiar with barns, um, sometimes you'll have these enormous stockpiles of manure. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now we're talking about these barns that are, these farms that are huge, right? And there's a lot of manure. And, um, and so uh, in many of these barns, that, all the manure has been swept away, all the feces into the rivers. And so now all the rivers are connected and the lakes are connected to them. And so you have all of that going on. On September um, 16th, approximately 5 million gallons of partially treated wastewater spilled into the Cape Fear River after a, trans, uh, after a treatment plant lost its power. Um, there are dozens of pits all over the area that are holding animal waste. Those are damaged and they're leaking out into the water. I mean, you're getting, you're getting the, the picture. Pe people's lives are soaking in dirty, dirty, spoiled water. So that's, that's just the beginning. That's like, okay, that initially happened and the repercussions of that are gonna carry on, but we're not done yet. The mold begins to grow within about 24 to 36 hours. And so if you can't get to your home or to your neighborhood, guess what? Shh, mold. And the mold grows quickly. Um, it's a little bit more humid uh, there than here. And so things are just growing quickly. Everything that you had, if you didn't get it out, likely is gonna be completely destroyed. And without power, of which power is out all over the area, not including the flooding, I mean, this is a disaster zone. Now, um, because of the wet, uh, you have mosquitoes, our favorite friends. I hate mosquitoes. They're so stupid. All they do is feed the bats in my backyard. I don't like them. But um, think about 
the infestation of mosquitoes everywhere populating at exponential rates. Not only this, you have people wading through the water and it's not just like river water, it's wastewater. And so you think if you get a little bit of a cut and you're wading through wastewater, now you have to deal with infections. And, and then we don't even know yet actually the toll on the crops. We know so many farmers have lost almost everything, um, but there are still, uh, the jury's out on a number uh, of farms and crops in the area. We're gonna find that out in the upcoming weeks. It's all just it's so overwhelming when you think about it. These are thoughts that I would never cross my mind that my house and my life on a dime could just be destroyed like that. And uh, it's interesting because you have this singular event, which is bad in and of itself, but the event as it lands is only a category one. It's the rain, which is hard, but then you have the repercussions in the aftermath of this, which are devastating lives, and it's gonna take years and years and years to clean this mess up. I wanna ask you a question. Have you ever made a decision, a singular event that maybe you didn't think was that big of a deal, but the repercussions of this event have loomed over your life for days, weeks, months, years, or decades? Now that's a rhetorical question, so don't shout out what yours is, please, right? Not the place. But for many of you in this room, you can go back, maybe before you trusted in Christ, maybe after you made a decision that you cannot undo and the effects of that are looming over your life. Now, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, um, there are a few things that happen. These are objective. Not only are you forgiven, you get new life, you get the promise of a new future. Um, God is able to take whatever disaster you have made with your life and begin to put the pieces back together. Um, But there is, if if I could maybe give you one big gift this morning, uh, it's this that God does not promise to fix all of our mistakes that we made in the past. So here's what happens. Somebody comes to faith in Jesus and they believe deep down inside, they may not um, be able to have vocabulary for this, but they actually believe that eventually God is obligated to make right all the mistakes they've made in the past. And so these mistakes haunt them and they come up regularly in their life and there are repercussions. Even though they're forgiven, God hasn't fixed all of the repercussions of the decisions that they've made before they came to Christ. So here's what happens. This is not uncommon. A Christian is sick and tired of facing the consequences of their life before Christ, and they get mad because God's not fixing it. And here's some, here's some reality for you, that God has never promised to fix everything you ever broke. That sometimes the decisions we make reverberate for years and years. In the case of Abraham today, we're gonna watch that the decisions he made reverberated, not just for generations, but for millennia but for millennia. And so here's what we're finding. We're finding that in the aftermath of of Abram's decisions in Genesis 12 and 13 and 14, he's gonna have to live with these. And if I could give you again one gift, it would be, you know what? When your past catches up to your present or to your future, pause before you shake your fist at God or wave your finger because God has never promised to fix everything that we have broken previously until he comes back and he makes all things right through the second coming in a new creation. And so, um, again, open up Genesis chapter 14. I wanna give you some context and uh, I want you to take a look at this, this map to get, set this up for you. Um, so here's what's happening in Genesis 14. Uh, Genesis 12, God calls Abram. Um, Genesis 13, Abram ultimately goes down to Egypt, makes some huge mistakes, almost abandons all the promises that God gives him. It tries to exchange it. I mean, it's a bad series of events. What we find right now is Abram is not, we'll say it's saved. He's not truly trusted in God. He's not forgiven yet. That happens in Genesis 15. We're in Genesis 14 right now. 
And so what's happening though is that the, the narrator, the author is trying to show you that God is drawing Abram to himself. And so this is the final series of events before Abram actually truly trusts in God. And so here's, here's what's happening. There's a lot of context here and I wanna bring you into this as succinctly as possible. Now Abram, um, gets called Abraham later, but now he's Abram. He's from Ur. So if you look at the green area, the large green area is what you would know as Mesopotamia. It's a very fertile area. And Ur is down towards the bottom where it says Persian Gulf. Ur is there. So when Abram left Ur and he went all the way to Jerusalem or Canaan, he had to go 600 miles up and then about 400 miles south. You can see the length and the extent of the journey. Now, about 12 years before Genesis 14, an event happened. And the event was this, there are kings all over Mesopotamia. And there's one king, I'm gonna totally mess up his name, but it's Ketel, uh, uh, whatever, we'll get to it in a minute. Ketelaomar, that's it, uh, ish. And uh, so he is a king and he gathers three other kings around him. And sometime about 12 years before Genesis chapter 14, they went down all the way through Syria into Lebanon, into Canaan, and they would go tribe by tribe, and apparently they were strong, they were bullies, and they would tell them, you will pay us a tax every single year, and if you don't pay it, we'll destroy you. Remember, we're stronger than you. So here's what he did. Uh, every year, they would send emissaries down, and they would collect the tax. One year, uh, right about the time of Genesis 14, um, the southern kings said this, we're done. We are not paying your tax anymore. Now, we don't know how the message got translated back a thousand miles the other direction. Here's what I imagine happened. Uh, two emissaries came down, and the king of Sodom um, executes and decapitates the, king, the, the king's emissaries from the east. Uh, he tells them, go back and tell your leaders we're done paying. What are you going to do about it? Well, the kings of the north, um, they're angry. Uh, they're furious. Something about the response put them into a rage and they gathered their armies and they traveled from Mesopotamia and they went north and they pillaged every single tribe and village from here to there, reminding everybody, you will pay your taxes. We will ask whatever we want and you will give us whatever we ask. No questions asked. You don't do it, then you are going to die. The Southern Kings finally watch this happen and they say this, we're done. We're going to battle. We are not gonna put up with these shenanigans. We're gonna take these guys down and we're gonna end this once and for all. And here's what you find. This really actually pretty, feels like a random story in Genesis 14 where four kings from the east, Iran, Turkey, etc., are battling with four or five kings from, we'll, we'll call it the, the Jordan area, Canaan and Lebanon. Now point number one in your notes, Genesis chapter 14. Point number one is this. Repentance does not eliminate repercussions. Repentance does not eliminate repercussions. FYI, I think by the end of this message, I deserve um, a big round of applause for all the dumb names that I have to try to say. So anyways, <laughs> verse four says this, 12 years they served Ketelaomer, 12 years. But in the 13th year, they were done. They rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketelaomer and the kings, there's four total, who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shever Carithium, something, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. So here's what they're doing. They are traveling around and they're going village by village, destroying, pillaging, so that every human being will remember, will remember this, don't, don't mess with us. Do not mess with us. This is like the mafia from like thousands of years ago. 
Bera, king of Sodom, is going to enter into this story. And after watching this, he gets a coalition of five total kings. And they say, we are done with this. Now, Bera um, likely means king of wickedness. And so whenever you think of Sodom, Sodom is a representation of everything that is fully wrong in this world. And so the king of wickedness gets these other kings together and says, we're going to stand up to them. There's more of us than there are of them. They're not on their home territory. We have all the advantages. Let's, let's do this. And so um, here's, here's what happens in verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of, Bel- and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the Valley of Sidim. Now, uh, there is so much going on in this text. I'm going to bypass the vast majority, by the way, of the geographical references and even the names of all the people and what they mean. Um, Literally, we could be here for six hours teaching through Genesis 14 because it is, you want to do it? I know, Jonathan, you're like, yes. And they're all like, shut up. Um, So, um, but there's a lot here. So I fully understand that you're going to have a lot of questions and we don't have the time to go through all of them. I'm going to pluck out one major theme from this text, but literally I could preach this same passage four times over and give you four totally different sermons that are all faithful to this text. So stick with me here, but don't get lost in this. It's beautiful once you get to the end of this. And so um, here, here we are, verse um, 8. With Ketelamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, which is actually Babel, uh, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they're losing, some fell into them. I'm reading this. I'm, I like to give you real-time uh, play-by-play what goes on in my brain. And I'm thinking, this is your home territory. How did you fall into a pit? When you're running, go around the pit. It doesn't say that they threw them into pits. That I could understand. But they're running, and they're like, oh, whoops, a pit of tar. I'm dead, melting. I don't get it. So some, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And verse 12 says this. They also took Lot. This guy drives me nuts. Every time he shows up, Abram is reminded, why did I bring that guy with me? Pure disobedience. Lot should never have been there. God told Abram not to take him. He told him to leave him behind. And this guy is going to haunt him for generations to come. I want you to notice where is Lot dwelling in Sodom. And so Genesis 13, Lot has a decision to make. Which land do you want? He takes selfishly the more beautiful land to the east. And then he starts making his way down and he's dwelling around Sodom and Gomorrah. Finally, he lands right in the heart of the most wicked city humanity has probably ever seen. And so he was dwelling in Sodom and his, position, and his possessions and went their way. They took everything. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Anner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, 
he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. You're actually never told that Abram or Abraham is a warrior. But what you realize is that for a 75-year-old man, he is very smart and he's skilled in battle. Now, there's a few things, uh, we'll call them subplots, that I want want to draw out of this right now. Because the author is wanting to show you some things. As Abram went to Egypt, what happened to his character? Did it go up or down? You say down, that's, that's the right answer, down, okay? Because the further away you get from God, the further away you get from God's people and God's place, what happens to the person? Their character, their integrity disintegrates. And the closer they get to God and his people, what happens to them? Their character and their integrity increase. So what you find here is that as God, as Abram has gotten closer to God, lived in the promised land where he built um, altars to Yahweh, he's growing as a man and his character is growing and God is drawing him to himself. And a few things that, that the text wants you to notice is number one, um, Abram was a really great neighbor. Um, To be able to build these partnerships spoke of his character in profound ways. And I want to tell you why. Because to go to battle with Abram against these kings, these are some of the most feared kings in the world at the time. And they're destroying everybody. Their reputation has definitely preceded them. And they put not just their lives, but their families and all of their possessions and their names and their legacies and their heritages on the line for Abram. Now that is influence. I think the text also wants you to know um, Abram is a guy that the closer he gets to God, the more prepared he is for life and the realities of living in this kind of land. But there's a little surprise here that I think is really beautiful. Um, I want to show you, and the text wants to show you what's happening on the inside of this man, Abram. At this point, the discerning Jewish reader is asking the following question. What side of the battle is Abram going to take? I want to remind you of something. All of these kings from Mesopotamia, where was Abram from? Mesopotamia. These were his people. These were his gods. This was the first 75 years of his life. He knew the villages. He knew the tribes. He knew the kings. He knew the people. He knew the languages. He knew the culture. These are his people. And his moron nephew Lot, right? It's take your pick. He knew their strength. He knew their danger. And this is a big question because right now, here's, here's one of the questions um, that, that the, the, the Jewish readers are asking is, is, is he gonna do what he did in Egypt? Is he gonna take the easy way out? What's happening here? And so here's what happens, verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night. He's stealthy too. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. I mean, he's pursuing them up and completely out of of the territory. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot, of course, with his possessions and the women and the people. Uh, Here's here's something I I really want you to see here. The text, the narrator, Moses, wants you to see something. Abram has left behind all of his people. And he's saying, you know what? I'm starting a new life. Uh, I am now pursuing to follow God. And I I am no longer going to be identified and defined by these people. These are a corrupt group of people, and I want nothing to do with them. In fact, the text actually gives you a little bit of hint in this. In verse 13, a couple of verses back, it drops a, a little bit of a bomb that most people would just read over, but let me, let me read it to you. 
Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the what? The Hebrew. This is the first time the concept of being a Hebrew or a Jew or a new nationality or a new nation is brought into scripture. And what the narrator is trying to tell you is that no longer is he a Chaldean from Ur in Mesopotamia. That is not his identity, that is not his nationality, but God has plucked this man out and he has made him to be a new nation, a new family, a new family that is unlike all those other ones. He could have, he could have so easily gone back and fought their battle out of even just sheer fear. But here's what you're watching. God is drawing this man, Abram. Abram has separated himself from his past. He's beginning to walk into the promises of God. He's being called now who he really is, which is the father of a new nation, not, not, Abraham from Ur, the Chaldee from Mesopotamia. He's a new man. This is a powerful decision for him. He could have easily left his annoying nephew Lot, but he chose not to. And I think this is just a great analogy. Like when the Lord calls you, he calls you and he gives you a new family, a new name, a new identity, a new future. And isn't it crazy how just your old life summons you back to itself? It's like, come back to me, I'm normal, I'm safe, I'm easy, I'm what you've always understood, you get me, I'm fun, you know how all of this works, that's way less fun over there, stick with me, your old life is just like a siren beckoning you back, isn't it? And, and, and Abram right now is at this crossroads, who will I be? Will I be Abram the Hebrew and start a new nation and do what is right and just, or will I go back and associate myself with my old, old life? Um, underneath this text is a beautiful decision that Abram is making as he walks and grows and is becoming the man of faith, I think, that we all know. But Abram, even though he's walking to God, is still daily dealing with the repercussions of his ridiculously dumb decisions. So frustrating. Uh, can I give you an insight into my brain in terms of how, what happens there when I read this text? Uh, talk about the question at the beginning, have you ever made a decision that the consequences lingered with you far after the decision? Uh, this is initially what went through my brain. I was actually, um, about five stories went through my head which probably actually aren't super appropriate to tell in church, right? Maybe privately we can talk about some of my massive regrets and the dumb things that I've done and how the repercussions have lingered for years. But um, the first story that went through my head happened about a decade ago and uh, there's actually a buddy in our church and some guys, we were at a conference and um, at lunchtime, um, one of my buddies said, I really want a nice steak. And I looked at him and said, I'm broke, I can't afford a really nice steak. Now, um, I wanna tell you this. Um, do you remember the first time in your life that you ever had like an $80 steak? Anybody? Some of you are like, I never have. Um, like, that's ridiculous, who would pay that much? Um, so I, had, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know how good it could be. I just, I'm used to Target steak or something, you know, I don't know. So uh, anyway, so uh, I, I, I said, uh, I can't afford this. And he goes, I'll take everybody out. And I'm like, awesome. I'm not going to say no to that. Let's do this. So we go to Gibson Steakhouse. And I, I don't know the reputation. I've never had another steak before this moment like this. And uh, so I actually confirmed with him uh, after first service, and it was a 24-ounce steak. That's a lot of meat, by the way. He said, you're supposed to cut it in half and take the rest home or something. Not this guy. Not happening. <laughs> 
So I took one bite and I, it was like cutting like through butter. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. Um, it's actually interesting because I, I remember this after the second service because we placed the time of the conference and my wife was pregnant and she developed a garlic allergy um, in her pregnancy to the point where she couldn't even be in the same room with me if I had garlic. Well, this thing's like coated in garlic butter and all whatever. I didn't even care. I just started eating. I was like, forget about my wife. Like I am, I'm all in. And so I'm like halfway through this thing and you know that point where your brain releases chemicals and says, stop, like, don't go any further? I shut that down, and I'm like, I, no, we're, we're going. And uh, three quarters of the way, and my brain is like, for real, dude, you're not in a good place right now. Stop. And uh, I took down the whole steak, and I looked, I looked at my friend. I'm like, I've never eaten anything that delicious. Well, um, by the time we walked out, I was in enormous pain. Uh, it was not good. And uh, so then I, I learned about three hours later, I started sweating. Um, I was, it was, everything went red, sweat through my whole shirt. And I discovered this profound principle. I want, I want to share it with you. It's called the meat sweats. <laughs> this thing stuck with me for like a good 36 hours. I'm just bringing you my world. This is how the text applies in my life, guys. Just being vulnerable with you, transparent, you know? And uh, I learned in this moment, like there are some decisions you can't undo and they stick with you. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was 36 of some painful hours of, of my life. And, uh, but then, you know, like, again, many of you in this room, you know, you're thinking about um, actual legit, like things in your life that you did and, and the repercussions are just with you. Um, and they don't last for 36 hours, they last for 36 years. Or maybe they even get handed off to the next generation, right? And uh, this is real. This is a very hard part of reality. And, and Abraham is learning this really hard lesson that just because the Lord saves you doesn't mean he erases all the repercussions of your life. And again, you might think, man, man, Michael, that's, why are you being such a bummer? You need to be prepared because the repercussions of your life will come back to you and you'll be tempted to say, God, I thought when I trusted in you, you told me my life was going to be easy. And by the way, has God ever said that? No. But I'm telling you, I watch Christian after Christian after Christian make dumb decisions, and they get mad at God when they have to pick up the pieces of the dumb decisions that they've made. And I want to just give you guys like a huge encouragement. The Lord will let you pick up the pieces of the dumb decisions you've made. Why? Because if he cleaned up everybody's mess, then we would be exponentially more stupid than we already are. And the world will be a gajillion times worse. God's actually a genius. He mitigates, he mitigates the vast majority of evil in this world by letting us reap what we sow. And at the same time, Abram lives, is gonna be living in this tension for the rest of his life. On the one hand, I trusted in you, you've forgiven me, my relationship with you, God, is secure, but practically on the ground, I'm still picking up the pieces of the mess that I've made. Now, in point number two, what I want to do is jump a few chapters ahead. Uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. And point number two is this. Repercussions can reverberate for generations. Sometimes our children and our grandchildren are left with the mess we've made. So in Genesis uh, 19, here's, here's what's happened so far. Um, God has destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, rained sulfur on them, obliterated them from the face of the earth. Evil, 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 evil places. And uh, Lot was spared with his daughters. Remember, his wife turned into a pillar of salt on the way out. Bad story, but that's going to come up in a few weeks. Um, so here's what happens. Um, Lot is, again, never supposed to have been anywhere over here. Abram was supposed to leave Lot behind. Well, he takes him, and he's constantly picking up 
after Lot's mess. Now here's what happens in Genesis 19, verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar. This is actually where he went when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He went to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. We don't know why. Like, I don't know if I just saw God obliterate entire cities with sulfur, watch my wife turn into a pillar of salt. Like, I could probably be afraid, right? Maybe Zoar is an evil, evil place. And so he's afraid because it's so evil that God's going to do that, destroy Zoar next. So in his logic, he says, uh, says this. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. It's fair to say right now, Lot's not in a good place. Can we say that? Verse 31 the next two stories are two of the most irritating stories in all of the Bible. I'm going to be honest with you, okay? And the firstborn said to the younger, I love this logic, totally, totally clear-headed. Our father's old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. And just pause. Um, who died in Sodom and Gomorrah? Their fiancés, the people they were betrothed to. They're dead. All the men they know are what? Dead, right? Everything. Okay, so who, who's going to want these two girls? So this is, this is their logic. I think it's genius. We'll see what you think. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. I love this, that one sister says this, and the other one goes, that's genius. Like, I don't know why I never thought of that. Oh, wow, you're so smart, sister. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. I, I just want you, to, I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that even though the New Testament says Lot was truly saved and trusted in God and lived in this internal torment in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, his daughters were all in full-on Sodomites. The pure wickedness and evil, which is beyond anything 21st century Western American Christians have probably experienced is unlike anything you can imagine. Like people get upset. I mean, God legitimately did mass genocide on these two cities, right? And all the people obliterated just like that. Uh, but I think what sometimes we don't understand is just how vile and tragic these people really were. They were pure wickedness. This is their logic. This is how they think. And it's just only gonna get worse. The next day, the firstborn says to the younger, I have a great idea. This is genius. You're going to love this. Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us, make drink, let us make him drink wine tonight also. Yeah. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Like I imagine one sister says, you're so smart. And this is their logic. Do you see how backwards and demented and perverted and everything is wrong with this? In their brains, this is a good idea, which just shows the level of corruption. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The worst part isn't done yet, by the way. The firstborn bore a son and called his name what? Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger son also bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of who? The Ammonites to this day. Do you know who two of the greatest enemies of the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrew, were the Moabites and the 
Ammonites. Just to give you a few examples of this, um, these were cultures um, that were built in the image of Sodom and Gomorrah and lived in constant opposition to the Hebrew people. Uh, I want to show you just a little bit about the Ammonites to start. This is just a a brief overview, by the way, of the Ammonites' uh, relationship with the Hebrews. Uh, Judges 3 joined with the Amalekites to enslave Israel. Judges 11 fought against Israel and the judge Jephthah. 1 Samuel 11 demanded all Israel gouge out their right eye if they were too scared to fight another war. 2 Samuel 10 warred against David. 2 Samuel 12 killed Uriah the Hittite so David could have Bathsheba. 2 Chronicles 27 warred against Israel. 1 Kings 11 and 23 worshipped Moloch who actually required human sacrifice, usually of children and babies, by the way. Vile, disgusting. Jeremiah 25, uh, the prophet lumps in um, uh, Ammonites with Egypt, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, Babylon, and all who are enemies of God. Psalm 83 constantly conspired against Israel. Amos 1 ripped open wounds of Israel's women so that they would not have Hebrew babies. Oh, we're not done. Let's talk about the uh, Moabites just for a moment. Again, brief overview. Numbers 22 hired Balaam to curse Israel. Judges 3 enslaved Israel. Judges 10 filled the land with idols, including Chemosh, who also human sacrifice, vile, don't even like talking about it. Judges 11 wouldn't let Israel go through their land. 1 Samuel 14 fought against Saul and Israel. 2 Kings 3 warred against Israel. 2 Chronicles, or 1 Chronicles 11 and 18 warred against David. Let me read to you how Zephaniah summarizes all of this, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. So hated were they by God, he forbade them to ever enter the temple or the worship of God's people. Here's what Deuteronomy 23.3 says. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. And he's like, and by that, I don't mean that literally. I mean that as like a ever, okay? Um, None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Do you know how many of Abraham's descendants died at the, at the hands of the Ammonites and the Moabites? A lot. More than we could count. I wonder. I wonder if Abram of Genesis 14 could go back and talk to Abram of Genesis 12 and say, hey, I know you're scared. I know you don't want to leave. I know it's really hard. I know it's an unknown place. I'm telling you this. If you take your dad with you, he's going to die on the way. He died in Haran on the way. And if you take Lot with you, tens of thousands of your grandchildren will be murdered by his descendants. Do you think Abram would have made a different decision? I think he would have. Here's what God doesn't do. God just tells you what to do, and he doesn't tell you all the repercussions. He doesn't need to. And so one of, the, one of the hallmarks of a man and a woman of faith is we take God at his word and we trust him. Like for Abram, this was no big deal. It was a small thing that would, would result in war after war after war with God's people. It would result in atrocities and vile cultures being perpetuated for generations that would be a constant threat to the Hebrew people, the people of God. And, and I think this is so similar in our life. God doesn't tell you how bad it could be. 
He doesn't need to. Uh, this is interesting, but like, I know we want to know why, right, all the time. But here's what I know. God never arbitrarily gives us a command because he's bored. He's just not just like, because oh, I said so and I just felt like giving you more rules, whatever. Like, God is a genius who loves you and only gives you rules for your flourishing and for the flourishing of humanity and the glory of God. He knows how you were made. He knows how you should work. He's not arbitrary. He's a genius who loves you. And the people of God believe this. I think if Abram in Genesis 14 could say uh, one thing to us, he would say, here's what I've learned. Never take the commands of God lightly. Don't fudge. Do what he says because he's serious. Now let's get to the good news. Point number three in your notes. Repercussions do not negate the promises of God. Come back with me to Genesis chapter 14. It could have been so easy, so easy for Abram at this point to think, God must be mad at me because of all the negative things that are happening in my life. And so here's part of this tension. Repercussions and the promises can simultaneously coexist, can't they? Repercussions and the promise can simultaneously coexist. And so Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, here's where we're going to start. Here's what it says. After his return from the defeat of Ketileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, the king of wickedness, went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Now, I would think that his message would be, thank you, thank you, thank you. I and all of my people would certainly be dead had you not intervened. But then something really weird happens. And this is where Genesis uh, chapter 14 is this weird story that, that you just gotta pay close attention to because strange audibles start happening. Verse 18, this guy shows up out of nowhere. We have no idea who this guy is. Abraham's like, what is happening? And here's what it says. And then Melchizedek, what, who is this? King of Salem, where is Salem? Actually, Jerusalem, that's the area that this guy is apparently king of. He brings out bread and wine. Well, how did he know that the king of Sodom and Abram are going to be in the valley of the kings? Uh, and then this random guy, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, shows up with bread and wine and says, hey, guys, let's all eat together. And then here's what it says. He was a priest of God most high. And your Jewish readers at this time are asking, wait a minute, you can't be a king and a priest. Well, it turns out that this random guy shows up and he is not from the, tri from the lineage of, or the tribe of Levi. This guy's playing a whole different set of rules here. Now, let's, let's talk about this for a moment because um, the New Testament, Psalms in the New Testament pick up this guy and they talk about him actually quite a bit. And now here's my million dollar question. Who is Melchizedek? Now, I think I know who he is, but I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, I'm a little torn in my answer because every commentary I read says, we don't know who this guy is. Um, but then when you read the book of Hebrews, I think it's pretty clear who he is. So I'm like, wanted to confidently say who Melchizedek is, but then when really, really smart guys, smarter than me, say we don't know, I'm kind of tempted to say, what do they know that I don't know, right? So personally, I think he's Jesus. So let me just give you a, a pre-incarnate theophany, um, an incarnation of Jesus before the incarnation, if you will. Uh, here's what Hebrews chapter seven verse says. Watch, watch this pan out. For this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Isn't that interesting? It's called a slaughter. Like, Abraham doesn't just go in and, like, deal with them. He just executes them. It's, like, bad. All right. Um, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. We'll see that in Genesis in a minute. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. How many kings of righteousness do you know, by the way? I can think of one. All right. 
And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Interesting. King of Salem, king of peace, shows up out of nowhere. Now the text gets even more interesting. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Come on. All right. I'm like, I literally want to get all the scholars in the world and say, really? Like, there's this random guy out there who's the king of righteousness and the king of peace, who has no father or mother, no genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. Like, here's what I imagine the author of Hebrews says, look the law like the son of God, FYI, just saying, right? He continues a priest forever. Anyways, I'm, I'm just putting all my cards on the table. I don't know why all these smart people say that. I can't find any reason why it's not Jesus, but um, we can debate about that later. Let's go back to Genesis 14. I think Jesus, Theophany, shows up, a God incarnation before the incarnation. This has happened a couple times in the Old Testament. Whenever God takes bodily form in the Old Testament, this is Jesus taking bodily form, the physical aspect of God. Verse 19 says, And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Let me tell you what's actually happening. We have the king of wickedness over here. We have Abram over here. And then we have Jesus over here. And Jesus says, guys, eat some bread, drink some wine. Let's have a discussion here for a moment. Um, King of wickedness, shut your mouth. I just want to talk to Abraham for a minute. Abram, okay? Abram, God loves you and he likes you. He thinks you're amazing. You are blessed. And like, I'm just really proud of you. Big hug. Like you've probably been wondering, is, is God for me? Because life has been really hard with this lock guy. And I know you're dealing with the repercussions, but hear me. The repercussions don't negate the promises. The promises are forever. You're going to pick up this guy's mess until he's dead. In fact, his ancestors are going to make your life terrible. But know this, the promises are forever. I told you I'm going to give you a great name. I told you I'm going to make a people of you. I told you I'm going to change the world through you. And despite the fact that you've tried to throw away these promises and exchange these promises, I'm a promise keeper. And I told you I'm going to do it, so it's going to be done. And so Abram, I think at this point, after he meets Melchizedek, we say, what did you learn? And he would say this. The repercussions of my sin do not negate the promises of God. They don't negate them. And then here's how the text ends. The text ends affirming Abram's growing integrity. It ends affirming his growing, if you will, faith in God. We're just a couple verses away from when Abram truly trusts in God. And here's what it says. Abram responds to Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of everything. Literally, it's a tithe, the tenth, it's the same concept. Um, gives him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom is now going to tempt him. The king of wickedness says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Whenever the king of wickedness offers you something, there's always a trap, trap. there's always a trick, there's always a string attached. Abram's very smart and he knows this, but the discerning reader is gonna say this, it's a lot of possessions. You could not just be filthy rich, but filthy stinking rich. And they're wondering, is he gonna pull another Egypt? Is he gonna compromise for the sake of money? He allows his wife to stay in Egypt while he gets richer and richer and richer. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I made a promise basically that verse 23, I would not, Take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. The only reason I'm rich is because of God, and I will not give you any of the credit that he and only he deserves. I will take, verse 24, nothing what the young men have eaten 
and the share of the men who went with me. And I love how this ends. He blesses his allies who've sacrificed everything. And he says this, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Let nobody ever give you, king of wickedness, credit for what the king of righteousness has done for me. I'm gonna close with a couple so what's. Number one is really simple. Don't blame God for your bad decisions. Because the repercussions could grow and grow and grow and the fist pump and the finger wag and the finger point to God, I'm telling you, I watch it over and over again, follower of Christ after follower of Christ, making terrible decisions and then when God doesn't clean up the mess and they have to face it in their body and their soul and their relationships, I'm telling you, don't point the finger at God. If he, if he cleaned up all your messes, all that would do for you is en- enable you to be more terrible later with the expectation that he's just gonna clean up your mess. <coughs> Number two, repent now before they reverberate to your grandchildren and beyond. You have no idea what the little acts of disobedience, how they unfold over years and decades. Here's the, here's the neat thing about what I just wrote on the screen. Because, because many of you, you've trusted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, I don't have to like, give you 13 examples of what this might be. You already know the thing that God wants you to get rid of, right? Most of you know. You know exactly what God is telling you. And I would say don't walk out of this room quenching the Spirit because the cost could be great and it accumulates generation after generation. Finally, number three. The repercussions of my sin do not negate the promises of God. Over and over, Genesis is putting the character of God on display for you. And he's contrasting the character of God with our stupidity. And I'm telling you this, that one of the things that God wants every generation through millennia to hear is that God is faithful and true despite the faithlessness and the sin of the people of God. That God's character, he is the hero of this book. He's the hero of the story. Every other God of every other nation would have killed Abram, left him for dead, and made his life terrible. And yet Abram, despite the fact that he tries to throw away the promises, gets richer and richer, blessed and more blessed. And this is even before he's actually fully, truly trusted in Yahweh as his God. Like, aren't you so glad that our God, the God of scriptures, is not like every other God of every other religion made up by man. Every other God of every other religion says this, if you're good, I'll bless you. If you're bad, I'll curse you. It's all on you. And the God of the Bible, the God of the covenant, the God of Christianity does something very different. He says, listen, salvation is all on me and I know how dumb you are and I know how dumb you're going to be and I will pursue you and be faithful to you despite the decisions you make. Like we serve a God who is so merciful and gracious and forgiving and long-suffering and love this and faithful. And so at the, end of the, at the end of the day and at the end of every story, I just wanna put God on a pedestal and say, look at your God. If he doesn't abandon Abraham, he's not gonna abandon you. Let's pray together. Father, I am reminded of Romans 3, 4. Though everyone were a liar, let God be found true. In all creation, every image of God that people try to make, every false religion, every human being, we, we are faithless to a degree. The gods this world makes are oppressors. And yet all who worship you are given life forever.
God, thank you for the story of, of, of Abram. Thank you for what it tells us about life and reality, but thank you for what it tells us about you. You're faithful. You keep your promises. And Lord, as we turn our hearts to communion, we're reminded again, you kept your word. You did what you said you would do for millennia. And now we look back and we get to have this grand track record of you keeping your word, of you being faithful, of you never letting us down. God, would you just, would you fill us with, with joy over this? That despite our faithlessness, you're forever faithful. And that when we stand in judgment of the last day and our sins are, are just laid out all before us, you declare us forgiven who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Because you said you would. There will be no surprises on that day and I'm just so grateful. And so God, as we celebrate communion and what you've done, would you truly fill us with joy and with gratitude. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.